0: Well, good evening, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the fifth in this 216 University of Edinburgh Gifford Lecture Series. Uh, my name is Jane Norman. I'm Professor of Maternal and Fetal Health and Director of the Edinburgh Tommy Centre and also Vice Principal for People and Culture at the University of Edinburgh. But I'm really delighted to welcome our eminent speaker, Professor, Professor Catherine Tanner Markand, Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School, as she continues her series on the theme of Christianity – and The New Spirit of Capitalism. So as I said, this is the fifth in the uh, lecture series, six lectures in in altogether, and this lecture is entitled Another World. Just to remind you, the lecture is being recorded and video will be available online, and I've now got great pleasure in handing you over to Professor Catherine Tanner. Great, Catherine. Thank you.
1: so much for that introduction. Uh, In this lecture, I'm going to return back to the direct consideration of financial assets and the markets for them, like stock markets, derivatives, and markets for them. And so I won't simply be looking at the effects of finance on other uh, economic organizations and governments. Um, The first half of the lecture is going to go past pretty quickly. Uh, Don't (laughs) Surprise. Uh, But don't worry if you don't catch uh, every detail. I mean, the basic points, I think, will be clear enough. Uh, The particular theme for this lecture is the future. The future becomes of special concern within finance capitalism because of how likely it is that the future will be significantly different from the present in ways that will either make or break one as we shall see, however, finance capitalism encourages people to approach such an anticipated difference between present and future in ways that, ironically enough, close that difference up. Its methods for dealing with the likelihood of quite impactful differences between present and future have the effect, in other words, of collapsing the present and future into one another, at least at a second-order level. One doesn't expect the future to be, future to be like the present, but one nevertheless expects that future to be no different from one's present anticipation of it. The future is quite likely, one believes, to be significantly different from the present, but in ways that the financial instruments for dealing with that difference lead one to expect can be reliably forecast. In the effort to profit from the difference between present and future, or at least prevent it from doing any harm, one uses financial instruments that collapse, one might say, the future present, that is what the future will turn out to be, into the present future, that is, into the present view of the future. And I'm using that terminology is from the sociologist Nicholas Luhmann. Confidence about the ability of such financial instruments to manage for one's own economic benefit, what is likely to be a drastically different and quite, and quite impactful future, depends, as we shall see, upon considering the one, the future to come, to be the equivalent of the other, the present view of the future. By virtue of such a collapse of future into present, the future one anticipates loses its capacity to surprise. The future to come simply reduces to the future it makes sense to expect given present circumstances. Those present circumstances themselves become thereby a kind of self-enclosed world. One learns to hope for nothing more from the future than what the given world's present limits allow, What, what it's reasonable to expect from within them, assuming their continuance, Present circumstances come to constrain imagination of the future, in other words, by setting a rigidly circumscribed boundary of possibility that cannot be crossed. It becomes thereby easier, as Frederick Jameson famously quipped, to imagine the end of the world, becomes easier to imagine the end of the world than to to imagine the end of capitalism. If circumstances were not at all in keeping with the volatile ones of finance capitalism and one expected the future to be just like the present, one would have little reason to give the future much thought. When people think the future will simply, will simply bring more of the same, the future garners no special, inattent- no special attention in and of itself. The future is likely, it is assumed, to be nothing, nothing more than an extension of the present, and for that reason, what one already knows about the present provides all the information one needs to have about it. The future becomes of much greater interest, per se, the greater the future's anticipated difference from the present, the more likely such a divergent from, divergence from present circumstance is thought to be, and the more consequential its possible effects. If the future is probably going to be very different from the present, and to have a significant impact on one's fortunes, it's a good idea to give it some thought in its own right. <coughs> These characteristics of the future that make it a distinct subject matter for concern may be found in modern life generally, but are exaggerated to an almost unheard of degree in finance capitalism. This is in great part because of the highly volatile economic circumstances upon which fortunes now depend. Big changes in economic circumstance become a regular everyday occurrence, And those changes have a direct and quite significant bearing on one's ability to make a profit or assume a loss, in great part because financial assets are often nothing more than claims on future income. Everyone knows, for example, that the valuation of stocks on a stock exchange is unlikely in future to be the same as it is in present, given, for one, the dependence of such valuations on changing demand for stock. The price of a stock goes up and down, that is, depending on how many people want to buy it from moment to moment. The mechanisms for making a profit on those markets indeed count on the likelihood of there being significant differences between present and future values. The bigger, the better. If the stock market were to remain flat, no one could lose money by buying and selling there, but no one could gain anything either. The greater the difference between future and present value, the bigger the potential for greater profits. On the part, for example, of those market participants whose investments correctly anticipate the future uh, direction of market, stock market fluctuation. F- the financial markets that set the terms for the economy as a whole are moreover not just routinely volatile but very likely at some point or other to be extremely so with enormous economic consequences. It's this ever-present possibility of extreme volatility that especially heightens every one of the characteristics of the future that make it an object of distinct concern. Assets traded on financial markets are, for reasons I'll discuss in a minute, liable to swing wildly in value, both up and down and with great speed, in tandem with shifts in market sentiment that often seem to turn on a dime. Those potential swings in valuation are indeed so extreme that they have the capacity to wipe out the gains of a lifetime overnight or more than compensate in a single day for decades of steady small losses. Even if the extremes are rare, stock values don't plummet every day, Extreme swings are nonetheless likely to happen at some point. Stock markets are prone to booms and busts, and will almost always, because of their magnitude, magnitude have a huge income on the economy when they do. In sum, financial markets have a special interest in the future. They foment a concern about what the future will bring, because so much is riding on that. And they also turn attention to the possible difference between the future and the present, because that difference is a prime source of profit. Or loss. Furthermore, they promote consideration of the potential difference between the future one anticipates and what the future will turn out to be. If the future is significantly different from what one expects and is planned for, the financial consequences given market volatility could very well be devastating. Indeed, one might say that financial markets are so interested in the future that consideration of the present for all intents and purposes simply collapses into concern about the future. The future, in all these respects, becomes an all-consuming preoccupation in every present decision. Whenever one seizes the day to make the most of every present moment before it's gone, it's it's to the future that one is looking. When deciding whether to buy a stock, for example, one needn't be particularly concerned about the present profitability of the company issuing it, apart from the bearing of that on the real questions of importance. What's the future value of this stock likely to be? By how much is the value of this stock likely to go up or down in future? And what if the future proves such anticipations of future value and degree of possible future fluctuation to be wrong? How likely is it that the future will prove judgments about it now to have been mistaken? The present price of a stock typically, indeed, builds into it answers to all these future-oriented questions. The present price simply becomes, for all intents and purposes, a calculation based on answers to such questions about the future. Present value collapses into discounted future value. Present price simply reflects, for example, a stock's anticipated future value among among other future-oriented considerations. Financial assets amount to claims on future income, and therefore the character of those future income streams in volatile financial markets, the likelihood of their increasing, by what margin, and how quickly establishes present value. Thus, no matter how presently profitable the company issuing it, the present price of a stock depends on whether market participants believe its value will go up in future and by how much. This is because market participants aren't buying a stock to reap company dividends that add up incrementally over the time the stock is held. In that case, present company profitability, if it at least held steady, would make buying such stock profitable, assuming one remains so invested over the long term. Market participants instead are typically buying with the hopes of selling purchased stock to someone else willing to pay more for it, ideally much more for it, in future on the exchange. If they don't anticipate anyone being so willing, then they won't buy it. If market participants believe the price is unlikely to go up by much because, say, this very profitable company hasn't the capacity to be much more profitable in future, the present price of the stock will reflect that. Demand for the stock will be low, even if the company issuing it is enormously profitable at the moment. And the present price of the stock will also, therefore, be low as a result of low demand for it. If present prices are to price in the future in all the relevant respects, that is price in likely future value, likely degree of variation in future value, and the likely accuracy of both these anticipations of the future, the future itself will have to be priced. The future must, in other words, be subject to calculation that provides it with a monetary value if present price is to reflect it. How much, for example, one is willing to buy a stock for depends on such calculations. If the future can't be assigned a number, the present value of a stock can't be given a number either. It's the way financial markets address this need to price the future reliably that ends up, as we'll see, collapsing the future into present estimations of it. Given the very volatility that makes it such a preoccupation in present investment decisions, one might think no reliable way exists to price the future. The future is just too unpredictable. Because the value of assets on financial markets can vary so widely, indeed swing wildly from one moment to the next, who knows what price such an asset will fetch tomorrow, let alone over any extended period of time. Simply because because of its futurity, The price of a financial asset at a later time doesn't yet exist. By definition, the future is nothing until it arrives. But much more than this, the future price of an asset on a financial market would seem to have no determinate value, and therefore there's nothing to measure ahead of present purchasing decisions made about that asset. Because of the way prices in financial markets are set by demand, future prices are to a significant degree determined by the number of people who now decide to buy or not to buy a stock, say, based on anticipations regarding its future value. Future value simply awaits such decisions in the present as their cumulative effect. These problems might be insurmountable if pricing the future into present value required one to know in advance what the future, at any particular point, might bring. But fortunately, this is not the case, and other options for pricing the future seem to remain. One can't reliably predict what the price of a financial asset will be at time t in future, but one might still think one could reliably predict the range of its possible values then. Calculations regarding the future routinely shift accordingly away from simple future forecasting, which is widely recognized to be impossible at any significant remove, to consideration of future variability. In order to determine what one should pay for a financial asset, all one needs to know about the future, indeed all one can get, is reliable information about the range of the swing in its value up or down that is likely to occur over the period of time one holds it. One needs, in short, to be be able to predict its volatility in future with some certainty. The price one is willing to pay in, in this way comes to depend on a kind of risk assessment of an asset, The more risky the asset because of greater volatility in comparison with other assets, the less willing uh, one is to pay for it, unless such risks can be compensated by the possibility of outsized gains. But how can one calculate volatility? If prices are volatile in ways that make them unpredictable, isn't the volatility of those same uh, prices unpredictable too? Prices of a particular asset may have exhibited a certain range of variation in the past, But why assume the likelihood of that same uh, range of variation in future? Past price isn't a good indicator of future price, that's admitted, but past variation is nevertheless taken to be a good indicator of future variation. Only indeed on such an assumption of continuity between past and future can future volatility be made calculable. And in this way, the difference one expects the future to make is lessened one is confident that one already knows what it can hold within a reliable range. Indeed, if one were genuinely basing expectations of the future on past market behavior, that past would disrupt confidence about one's ability now to predict the future, whether it be particular values or the degree of their variability. If the past were really one's guide, one should conclude that the future is no more predictable now in any respect than it was in the past. The past future, that is the future as it appeared from the standpoint of the past, proved to be unpredictable, a surprising shock. The present futures, the present's future, that is the future as we now see it from the standpoint of the present, should be similarly unpredictable. It's only with the benefit of hindsight that what others failed to expect in the past appears a likely result, completely unsurprising given what came before. Past market crashes, for example, always seem to be almost inevitable, financial assets having been bid up well beyond any sustainable level. That's the way they appear now. Even if the exact moment couldn't be foretold, the crash had to happen at some point or other, it now seems. But that is exactly what wasn't generally apparent then, where so many people wouldn't have continued the buying frenzy in such assets right up until the point of complete market collapse, However ill-advised the confidence in predicting the character of future volatility, the simple fact of that confidence means the future itself can remain unknown while allowing for pricing oriented to it. All that matters for present pricing of financial assets is the way future volatility looks at present to most market participants. Whether for well-founded reasons or not, people do in fact think they can give the do, in fact, think they can give the likely future variability of financial assets numerical values. There are widely accepted formulas, like the Black-Scholes formula, indeed for making uh, such calculations of value at risk. It's a simple fact that such a widespread practice exists that provides the basis for present pricing. That sort of basis for present pricing holds, indeed, across the board, whether it involves... uh, anticipations of future volatility specifically or not. Actual present prices in general reflect what most people at present think the future will be like, since that, to a great extent, determines present demand. For this reason, one can put a number on the present value of a stock, price it reliably, if one can put a number on how many people presently think a stock will go up or down by a certain amount within a particular future time frame. What one is willing to pay is simply determined by calculating present anticipations of the future, or what I've termed, following uh, Lumen, the present future. The future present, what will actually turn out to be the case in future, is not really an issue. The possibility that it will be radically different from what everyone now expects it to be can simply be set aside in present evaluations of what a financial asset is worth. Indeed, present anticipations of of the future don't just help establish the present value of financial assets in this way. They have an enormous impact on actual future values. For just this reason, it would seem to make sense to forego worry about the possibility that present predictions could prove mistaken. They can't be mistaken because they help in great part to bring about the very future they predict. Present anticipations amount, in other words, to a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, in virtue of the way future prices on financial markets are determined by internal market dynamics, ones, that is, that are fueled by internal market demand. For example, the more people who want to buy a fa- financial asset today because they anticipate, for whatever reason, its rapid future rise in value, the more the price will, in fact, rise in, f- in future due to that heightened demand itself. Anticipations of price rises don't just help bring about what they seem to predict. They also have the capacity to feed on themselves in a kind of self-generating spiral, up or down, because of the same market dynamics. Present anticipations about the future are more than confirmed as a result. By by virtue of their simply having them, people's hopes of future profit in making present purchases are routinely exceeded. In other non-financial markets for goods and services, Increased price lowers demand. If the price of peanut butter uh, doubles overnight, demand for it will decline precipitously. And lowered demand then leads to lowered prices. The price of peanut butter will have to decline to get people to resume their old buying habits. On financial markets to the contrary, present price increases, fueled by increased demand, tend in and of themselves to foment even greater demand in future thereby ratcheting up future prices, too, all the more. This sort of feedback occurs because, irrespective of any independent verification of what warrants it, an increase in present demand and the price increase that accompanies it it, are taken to be a signal of market confidence about future price increases, thereby spurring increased buying and helping in and of itself to elevate prices further. In both these ways, because anticipations of the future in financial markets help create what they predict and easily generate self-propelling feedback loops, the future present tends to collapse within financial markets into the present future, in fact. That is, the future regularly turns out, in reality, to be just what market participants expect it to be, or even to exceed their hopes. Until, of course, that point where the future fails to conform to expectation. By way of such market dynamics, prices of stocks, for example, are eventually inflated well beyond anything that might be justified by actual increases in corporate profitability across the board. And then abruptly reverse course with a likelihood of a feedback loop of a negative sort now kicking in. Prices precipitously declining in self-propelled fashion to a level well below what that very same assessment of corporate profitability might warrant. Even if it's not much of a factor in setting present prices on financial markets, financial operators are indeed well aware that the future may not turn out as anticipated. They must know, even if that knowledge isn't at the forefront of their consciousness, that the models used in the present to price future volatility could prove to be inaccurate, and that if and when they do prove to be so, the consequences are likely to be devastating just because that possibility hasn't been factored into current, uh, to present prices. No one, say, expects that a 2,000-point drop in the stock market on a single day could happen in a million years if calculation of that likelihood were, as it often does, assume that market prices follow a bell curve in which the likelihood of an event hap- uh, happening dramatically decreases with the degree of its divergence from the average, And that very fact makes such a drop, if and when it comes, all the more devastating, because people have been buying stock with an eagerness predicated on failure to see that very drop coming. Everyone has been investing in the market more than was prudent, bidding prices up well beyond sustainable levels, and in the process, making huge, devastating drops for everyone, all the more likely. Many of the major innovations in financial markets, financial markets and derivatives, are indeed designed to protect against this very possibility that the future will not turn out as anticipated. For example, if one fears that the price of some asset in future will, will rise beyond what, will one, one, what one will want to pay for it then, one can contract now to pay a predetermined price for it at that future date. If the price at that time happens indeed to be more than that contracted price, one saves the difference between the contracted price and the actual future price. If the actual price turns out to be less than one... Then one uh, then what <laughs> if the actual future price turns out to be less than one... Uh, what one agreed to pay for it then? One loses the difference between the two and has to pay just that much more than one would otherwise have had to, but at least by taking out such a futures contract one protects oneself from the possibility that the future prices will be higher than one is willing to pay. Or one can pay now simply to have the option of paying a specified price at some future time. One one needn't exercise the option unless the actual price in future is higher than the contracted price when the time rolls around. And the price might turn out, of course, to be lower than what one has the option of buying it for then, making the contract of no use to you, but purchasing such an option at least protects against the possibility of having to pay more than the contracted price. While they are in this way predicated on the possible difference between expected futures and actual ones, these contracts, futures in the one case, options in the other, have, however, to be priced themselves. How much is one willing to pay for the security of being able to pay in future no more than what one would now like to pay in future? Or conversely, how much does one require to be paid for being a counterparty to such a futures contract for assuming that is the risk that the target price of a futures contract will be much lower than what one could actually have sold that asset for in future? To answer such questions and come up with a price for options and futures contracts themselves, one needs to have a way of reliably forecasting the likely range of future prices up and down for the assets that such contracts concern. Indeed, only if a high level of confidence exists concerning the accuracy of the probabilities assigned to future variations in those asset prices within a certain range can these derivatives be priced. The sort of calculations about future volatility that I just discussed are for this reason most directly relevant to derivatives markets in particular because the risks and possible rewards of volatility are what such derivatives directly concern. These derivatives are specially, specifically designed to deal with volatility, and for that reason, require the ability to price it. As we discussed before, however, reliably pricing future volatility entails the collapse of future presence into present futures. That collapse returns with a vengeance in the pricing of de- derivatives then, even though the difference between the two is what gives rise to the need for de- derivatives in the first place. In short, the probabilities of variation in future prices within a certain range need to be reliably calculated for the derivatives that concern such price variations to be priced themselves. If markets in these derivatives are to exist at all, and they do, these probabilities can't remain simply unknown, however what much the wild swings typical of financial markets might give one reason to think they are. But reliable calculation of those future possibi- future probabilities is only possible if've as we 've seen if the future is to a very significant degree like the past that is past volatility provides only if that is past volatil- past volatility provides good evidence for future volatility for this reason, the possibility that the future will disappoint predictions about it once again disappears from view. it drops out of consideration impelled by the need for present pricing of derivatives. Indeed, even apart from what follows from the need to price them, derivatives are all about taming the ability of the future to surprise, depleting its capacity to be anything other than what one wants it to be. Derivatives, for example, allow one to make money off the differences between present and future, whatever those differences happen to be, whatever their degree, large or small, and whatever their direction, up or down. Whatever the future brings, it's therefore to your liking. The potential of the future to cut into your profits can be tamed by financial instruments that offer to do that for you at a price. So for example, if one's investments will turn a profit only if the purchased asset goes up in value in future, one can take out a derivatives contract that guarantees a payoff in case the value declines. Either way, therefore, irrespective of what the future brings, one wins. Derivatives in this way allow one to hedge against the failure of any simple directional bet Because of volatility in financial markets, such directional bets are indeed often likely to be wrong. Derivatives amount, in other words, to a kind of insurance against the downside risks of volatility in financial markets, with those downside risks being assumed by counterparties willing to do so in exchange for present profits taking the form, in effect, of insurance premiums. But unlike ordinary insurance contracts against, say, fire or flood, which allow one to benefit from things one hopes won't happen, derivatives don't require ownership interest in the assets insured. And, in, and this allows one to turn potentially hefty profits from even minor market volatility. Because one only pays the cost of the contract itself that insures against asset value decline, say, and needn't, and one needn't have bought the underlying asset that's so insured, one's potential profit in case of that decline is pure profit. The payoffs needn't offset any actual losses in the way, say, an insurance payoff can offset the loss of one's home, leaving one still with a loss, perhaps, but with a much smaller one than would otherwise be the case. Instead, one simply enjoys the payoff, free and clear, minus the cost of the contract itself. Almost any payoff, no matter how small, has the capacity in this way to be positively lucrative." In general, derivatives promise to tame the future's capacity to limit choice, despite the fact that once it happens, you won't be able to do anything about it. Derivatives purport to make the future a source of open possibility rather than constraint. In future, a certain asset will go for a certain price, but taking out a derivatives contract now means you won't have to pay that. One can pay in future whatever one freely decides now that one would like to pay then, by taking out a futures contract or simply leave the matter open by buying options. Derivatives hold out the promise, then, that the future will never get the best of you. By employing derivatives, you can be ready for anything the future might throw at you, whatever might happen. One retains the possibility of turning a profit. They promise, that is, to close off the future as a possible source of life disruption, as anything with the capacity to throw one's life off balance. They promised to do this by virtue of their ability, first of all, to make the future into something already anticipated and dealt with proleptically. The future is brought into the present and dealt with now, so it won't be taken off guard. One can neutralize the disruptive potential of the future by folding it into the present, so to speak. Like the stoic penchant for imagining in the present the worst thing that could possibly happen, In order to gain practice in composure, one can use a derivative to imagine the worst possible future scenario given one's present asset allocation and take take steps now to offset its effects then should the worst, in fact, happen. Buy, for example, a derivative now that will pay off big in case such a disastrous future scenario comes to pass. Like the present-oriented point of the stoic practice of anticipating one's death the point is to train one now to be an athlete of the unexpected event, the master of all that could befall one, the point of anticipating the future becomes in great part its consequences for developing the appropriate habits of derivative purchasing in the present, a kind of prudence enacted through financial planning. One can do an end around whatever the future in fact will bring by employing derivatives that amount to a kind of refusal to commit to particular outcomes by employing options, for example. In that case, one buys derivatives that themselves seem to instantiate free and open possibility as a way of countering any downsides from a future one doesn't even try to predict. Again, like stoicism, in this case, it's practice of refusing to choose anything except virtue without reservation so as to avoid disappointment. Derivatives, options in particular, would permit the refusal of any unreserved choice about matters whose realization the future could hinder. I commit myself to a certain hope for future in virtue of my present investment decisions. But only with the reservations represented by the derivatives I also take out now to hedge my bets, should the future turn out otherwise. Unfortunately, in the case of financial markets, at least, such promises of a defanged future turn out to be spurious for for reasons I already intimated the future to come is not likely to conform to present anticipations of it, in great part because those anticipations are based on calculations that assume a much greater continuity between the future and the past than is warranted. Somewhat ironically, the more people are convinced of derivatives' capacity to tame the future, the more imprudent they become, taking more risks than they should. Indeed, given market feedback loops taking ever more risks the more that other people take them so that it becomes all the more likely that the future will will bring, indeed, catastrophic surprises. Okay, Christianity. (laughs) Phew, now we can leave derivatives behind. Uh, For all the influence of Stoicism on Christianity, Christians typically do not, like actors in today's financial markets, take steps to neutralize or master a disruptive future if by that future one means the ultimate transformation of the human by way of the gift of Christ, resurrected life to come. This is not simply because they are confident of that future's beneficent character. Why take steps now to prepare for a future one anticipates being absolutely delightful? The future that Christians expect retains a strongly negative flavor of potential disruption, something whose effects it would therefore make sense to try to nullify prospectively and not just because Christians sometimes think that that future might include damnation for some. Even a purely benevolent end, universal salvation, retains a highly negative cast to the extent such a future will, will tear us away from what we remain in and of ourselves, sinners. The more that sin is part of us, who we are, that with which we identify, the more the transformative effects of grace are felt, in fact, one could say, as a kind of torture, what rips us away from everything we otherwise are and love improperly. One might master these rupturing effects to come if one were less of a sinner. One might make the end less painful by preparations now that take the form, for example, of moral self-improvement. But Christians who believe, as I do, that the character of Christian lives before the end will always warrant confession and repentance, and who have a modicum of honest self-awareness stemming from such constant practices, typically don't expect those efforts ever to come to much in this life. Even assuming a significant degree of moral and spiritual advance in Christian lives, that advance ever remains the gift of grace. Such dependence on grace is what fundamentally rules out considering any such advance a self-propelled process furthered by mere efforts at self-reformation. Indeed, what lies at the root of any achieved transformation can never be simply referred can never be simply transferred to the human in the form of new created powers of self-mastery. Human beings remain dependent on the very spirit of Christ within them for any ability they lead, they display to lead life differently. The uncreated grace of the Holy Spirit itself always always lies behind any created graces that take the form of new human inclinations to be God-devoted and loving towards others. This continuing dependence on what lies beyond the human is all the more evident from the ultimate end of such transformative processes. Unlike moral righteousness, eternal life, or the enjoyment of God's very own life, is not in principle anything one could gain or even incrementally approach by way of human powers per se, no matter how improved they might one day become in their own right. In contrast to stoic and financial tactics of willing with reservations anything the future might adversely affect, there is, moreover, no possible way of doing an end around the ultimate end that Christians expect. All other possibilities at such time will be foreclosed by God. In much of the way death forecloses them, there will be no keeping one's options open, no room for maneuver at the end of days, and therefore no point in taking steps now to try to assure that. In part because they don't take any of the steps taken in financial markets to master it, the future that Christians expect remains as radically different from the present as it could possibly be short of not being a future suitable for human creatures. In general, Christian responses to such a radical difference between present and future, unlike those encouraged by financial markets, do nothing to close that difference up. Christians do make the future a special object for attention in its own right, for the general reasons financial markets do. Christians expect the future to be quite different from the present way life is lived, and they expect that what the future holds will have an enormous bearing on their fortunes. Considerations of the future cannot be collapsed into considerations of the present, therefore. Knowing about the present way of the world won't tell you anything much about the future that will one day come. The future requires its own special attention. If anything, the general already heightened reasons for, for considering the future in financial markets are even more heightened in Christianity. It's hard to imagine a future of more momentous import, bringing with it, as it does, the prospect of either eternal life or eternal torment. And Christians expect resurrected life, at least, to be as different as could be from the life one lives now, still typified by moral and physical corruption. One indeed needs to go through death, both figuratively and ultimately literally, to get to it. One will remain the finite creature one is, however radical the ultimate transformation of human existence itself. Simply human potentials finally perfected in the end. But one's whole manner of existence will nonetheless be changed from the ground up insofar as one will one day come to live off the very life of God already made one's own now in Christ. One will not simply have that spirit of Christ for one's own as one does now, but one's whole life will be will transparently manifest that fact in ways that can't be anticipated beforehand. Though obviously of incredible interest because of its enormous significance for human fortunes, most Christian theologians for this reason remain circumspect about their abilities to describe what's finally to come. While always tempting, will our bodies be ethereal, perhaps spherical, will we take on angels' wings, and so on? such descriptions remain in their most important respects purely speculative. The character of our ultimate future state is often admittedly unknown, simply unimaginable, because as radically different from the present as can be, short of being a simple replacement for it. Even if the character of the life one will be living at the end of days remains unknown, Christians feel little doubt about the fact of resurrected life to come. One can be certain, on the basis of what Christ has accomplished, that one will one day be resurrected too, despite having no real idea of what resurrected life will be like. Because predicated on confidence in Christ, this certainty about the future does not depend on any calculations from data supplied by generalizations about the character of human life past and present. Such calculations, as we saw in the case of financial markets, would bring back into the picture significant continuities between human life now and in future. Christians, Christians in short, have no need to close the gap between present and future to insist on continuity in in order to be sure of that future. If one does the math, so to speak, the probabilities of the future Christians expect can can indeed be next to nothing using such data. Christ's second coming and the general resurrected life that will attend it may be no more likely now than Christ's incarnation was then. That is not at all likely. As unlikely, unlikely as anything could possibly get, be, given the character of human life preceding them both. Keeping the earlier unpredictable surprise of Christ's advent in mind, Christians may in this way be unusually resistant to the hindsight bias that so commonly afflicts risk assessment in financial markets. Christians, I've argued in Lecture Two, typically tell stories about themselves and about salvation history generally that stress just how unpredictably surprising the future looked from the standpoint of the past. They don't typically use retrospective stories about the past to smooth over discontinuous jumps in previous sequences of events, but to highlight them. Looking for lessons from the past, they therefore have little reason to think the future will be any less surprising from the standpoint of the present than it was from the standpoint of the past." Moreover, when Christian, what Christians hope for doesn't become any more likely to the degree progress in manifesting the grace of Christ in human life has been achieved, assuming for the moment that there has been any significant project, of which you know I'm very doubtful. Uh, it's not the amount of progress so far that gives one hope of final achievement of a perfectly grace-manifesting life, but the power of Christ's own working even now through his spirit. The likelihood that the future will see such a perfectly grace-filled life simply does not increase or decrease with the evidence so far or ever suggesting human success in manifesting that grace. Indeed, according to Christian understandings of it, what the future will bring in the end is simply not the sort of thing that can be subject to means-ends calculations at all. It makes no sense to think, if I do this, behave morally, then that eternal life will become more likely, In much the way, if I invest in the stock market, my gaining 10% a year will be much more likely than were I to invest in bonds. Actually, that's not very likely. But uh, being moral can't be the means within any means-ends calculation to life in God because it is itself the anticipatory effect of that life in God now. What enables one to be moral now is the same thing one hopes will be fully manifest then, life in God. Life in God is something one enjoys now, what Christ has already accomplished, and cannot then be the consequence of actions taken now to get it. Rather than it being the consequence of our actions, those actions are themselves the consequences of it. The life in God secured for us by Christ is what we are drawing upon now to live differently, For this reason, while the future remains enormously important to Christians, they often fail to make it the direct object of future anticipation, if that means anxious attention to what the future might hold, given the present state of the world. They are, in other words, like Kierkegaard's rowers in a skiff, getting on with the task of leading life differently at every moment, with backs turned to the direction of movement. Turning one's attention directly to the future to come in order to assess one's progress or lack of it is to make that future the subject of calculations of more or less, and therefore to fundamentally misunderstand the way to get there. Turning to look directly at the destination one hopes to reach doesn't get one there any faster. Doing so simply hinders one from rowing in the way one needs to. Enabled by the very presence of Christ's spirit within one, arriving at the destination involves a kind of jump from one whole manner of existence to another, from a manner of living that fails to adequately manifest the spirit given to one, to a life fully in keeping with that spirit, a spirit enabling transformations in human life beyond the scope of human capacity, whether sinful or otherwise. Believing one, get, believing one gets to new life primarily on one's own steam as a function of the rowing, one turns back to see how far there is to go and in the process mistakes the goal for something brought closer by human success, something such successes approximate, a matter for incremental approach along a purely created axis, simply more of the same. When thereby ironically delays that future's coming by substituting a different sort of future for it altogether. Anxious about arrival, that turning threatens to make it, that arrival, all the more unlikely. What I've been arguing for here, the unmitigated radical character of the difference between present and future in Christian thought, has indeed been widely recognized and has often been made the subject of hostile critique by Marxists, for example. According to that de- critique, which I think has to be taken very seriously, the radical difference between now and then proves purely compensatory for Christians, reconciling them to the very conditions that such a stark difference between now and, th- now and then helps them to deplore. Don't worry if there's nothing to be done now to better those horrible conditions. Things will be made all right in the end. Those awful circumstances now reversed then by means not of your own making or even worse, even if there is something that could be done now to improve things, don't make the effort, leave the matter to God. Christian hopes do not prove compensatory in this way when, as in the theological position I've been developing, the future to come is in the most important respects pulled into the present. The grace that is necessary to change things radically exists and is at work in the world now, providing human beings with everything they need to live life differently. There is, therefore, a way from here to there because the motor of that change is as much ours now as it ever will be in future, that motor being life in Christ. The future to come in this way funds the struggle for realistic, proximate futures in the present. Drawing upon that grace of God, one should should do everything one can now to manifest it in the character of the life one leads. No reason not to start with what the world at present would seem to make a realistic possibility. Even if the past provides little ground for expecting such efforts to be any more successful now than in the past, what impels those proximate efforts and gives one hope against hope for their success is the same grace of Christ that underlies one's ultimate hopes. Present hopes for the near future are directly fed in this way by far-off future hopes, which will only come to fruition in the eschaton. This sort of pulling of the future into the present, which I've just been describing, does not, however, like a structurally similar move in the pricing of financial assets, have the effect of lessening the difference between present and future. The future that's present now remains disjunctively present, one could say. It remains, as the very grace of God, everything that the sinful life surrounding it is not. Indeed, as the very presence of God, it remains absolutely different from everything created that surrounds it. Although it funds realistic proximate hopes for change, what one ultimately hopes for then, the ultimate hope that drives all these proximate ones, is another world entirely. That future state of the world to come, in which transparency to God will be perfectly realized, remains an absolutely other world, in that only God and nothing nothing about the world's own tendencies and trajectories makes it possible. Rather than being the realization of this world's own latent future possibilities, the power of God fully manifest in that future world is what presently pulls this one towards it in ways that that therefore ensure a never-filled gap between this whole world and the next." Despite this never-filled gap between this whole world of continuing struggle against sin and the next without it, this other world has, however, been entering into every present moment in a disruptive way so as to form an otherwise impossible historical trajectory of history's apparent losers, and historical movement made up of all those who, swimming against the stream of their times, never seem to get anywhere." What will finally come will establish once and for all what could never be predicted, that their efforts were not in vain, were not for nothing, that their efforts to bring in an other world did not, as they appeared to, come to nothing, vanish without consequence. What are the lessons to take away from all this? I'm not suggesting that the Christian account of the future I've just developed provides an alternative model for treating the future within financial markets, as if it would make sense to try to imitate Christian approaches to the future within those markets, as if the character of those markets could be improved, for example, if Christians themselves acted differently within them, according to their own quite different ways of approaching the future. Instead, I'm applying to financial markets as a whole the Christian approach to the difference between present and future. I'm suggesting, that is, that the financial approach to the future is part of the present world to be left behind, a world to be repudiated in all the very basic ways it counsels people to relate to themselves and others, in favor of a whole new world to come that will be as different from this world as possible. But which one? That's the question for my last lecture. Thank you. So you
0: talked a little bit about financial markets encouraging risk. and you also kind of implied that, um, in, in a way, in the in the Christian thought, there's no point in taking steps now to modify the future. Is that?
1: Is that, is uh, that is no, I wasn't. Okay. No, I wasn't saying that exactly. Um, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, if you've been given grace for the purpose of reforming your life, you mm. should be reforming your life. So you're concerned about, uh, in, in that sense, you're concerned about the future mm. or future performance. I mean, you want to be a better person. You want to mm. live differently, et cetera. Uh, so I was making, uh, I think, uh, a number of uh, more uh, nuanced sort of distinctions. Mm. So I, I was suggesting, one, that you could be certain about the ultimate success of those efforts, uh, because one wasn't depending on one's own capacities to get to or that think, final yeah. state, yeah. and if you were constantly failing or weak in the efforts, that would undermine your confidence in getting there. And I'm mm. suggesting Christians don't have their undermine uh, mm. their confidence undermining that way, because undermining that way because their own efforts are not kind of incrementally building on, and they don't assume some kind of continuity has to be present between their own level of success now and what they, the kind of success they expect in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so that you're prevented from doing a kind of, uh, uh, you know, from calculating your successes and failures and trying to, Predict on the basis of the degree to which one's been successful, how likely yeah. successful, how likely the success is going to be in future. All those kinds of things I'm su- suggesting are interrupted, but of course you are very concerned about the future. I mean, mm. you want the world to be transformed, and mm. you think uh, the what makes that possible is already present. Mm. So there, mm. in pr- principle, isn't there any reason not to have extremely high hopes. It's just they're very peculiar high hopes that don't seem to have the usual sort of basis. The primary point I was making that they don't require any uh, continuity between uh, present achievement and future expectation. And that's what I'm basically arguing, that what makes financial markets much more risky than they should ordinarily, what makes people take much greater risks than they should is because they actually think their behavior is not risky. Yeah, when it is. And then when it becomes clear that it was much more risky than they thought, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't, can't do anything about it. I mean, the market has collapsed. You can't get rid of your assets. You can't sell your stock to anybody because nobody wants to buy it. Everybody is trying to get out of the market at exactly the same time. Yeah, and yeah it's called a bust.
0: Yeah. And as you say, you just get these big feedback. These yeah,
1: you get these huge uh, potential mm. swings. Mm. You know, yeah. Financial markets, I think it's been proved, are prone to these wild swings, Mm. to booms and busts. They do it all the time, there's a reason for it. It's because of the internal dynamics of these markets because they're unusual. They're not like ordinary markets for buying and selling peanut butter. They they have very different dynamics that lead to this kind of thing.
0: And the market actually benefits from that. Yes, and certain
1: players benefit quite a bit from, I mean that's the whole point you know yeah. that there, you know that there's extreme volatility and you're trying to profit from it it's mm. very hard to do that. I mean you need to be confident that you can kind of calculate uh how best to deal with that volatility in order to make maximum profit from it. but most people are not doing that they're just uh you know like, uh, kind of <laughs> without any further uh uh you know, attempt to be clever about all this. Just investing in your pension fund, yeah. and somebody else is doing this <laughs> supposed yeah. clever calculation until you know, you retire at the wrong time and you don't have any money in, in your pension plan or whatever. Mm.
2: Professor Tanner, could you speak to the Christian image of the future as a cessation from labor? So I'm thinking of Hebrews 4. Yeah, and a there's nice that lecture. strong element of today and <laughs> <in> the present. <laughs> Um, but at the same yeah. time, it says there remains a Sabbath rest um, mm-hmm. in which the workers cease from their labor as God ceased from His. Um, yep. So perhaps you could comment on that a bit in relation to.
1: Yeah, no, uh, this I mean I'm moving towards what I was promising uh, as an anti-work ethic. So yeah, in the next lecture, I'm going to uh, not so much appealing to Sabbath understandings of time, but making some kind of you know anti-work Christian-based anti-work ethic. <laughs> Meaning by that, yeah that you don't have to, uh, for example, uh, you don't have to kind of deserve by your hard work your welfare benefits mm-hmm. or something else, mm-hmm. or by your attempt to look for work, or by your taking any job that's offered to you, or anyway, mm-hmm. uh, you know, any number of conditions that are set on, say, welfare provision or things like that. But, in, you know, you'll see, uh, you know, attack on performance pay when it's individual-based and that kind of thing. Good. Yeah, but that is the next question.
0: Okay. So we've got one up there, and then one here, so gentlemen,
1: um, gentleman there. I apologize for going at breakneck speed. I tried to overcompensate for being sick by having coffee ahead of time, <laughs> and that obviously hyped me a bit too far above my normal pace. You were just making us work to keep up. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah it would require a lot of effort from you to even follow what I was saying. That's great. Yeah, it's great. It's good for you.
0: Yes, it was. Okay. yeah.
3: Uh, thank you for the for the great food for thought. Um, I am a professor of accounting, and uh, historically, accounting, uh, accounting practice, and um, financial practice have, uh, for centuries, uh, given attention to the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, this derives from the very fact that accounting practice share with liturgical practice and religious practice, for instance, the same structure of certain rhetorical figures, like, for instance, the ductus, where you start with uh, an inventory of yourself, uh, and of your soul, then you interrogate the future and construct different compositions of what the future could look like, and then in the third phase you have the illumination and you have found... Uh, you know, a, a solution to your problems in accounting terms or you have found God uh, in um, right. liturgies. Right. Uh, so the duktus, religious uh, practices, accounting practices, uh, instill open belief for a certain kind of a future and salvation. Um, what, in a sense, a difference that I see, though, between the past and the present, and this is where I would like to hear your your, your view, is that in the past accounting practice have interrogated the future as a mystery, uh, and therefore, in that sense, they were intrinsically uh, religious, while nowadays, as you rightly said, finance believes that uh, the future can be reduced to a set of cash flows and uh, discounted, and and then we are done. So I wonder, and this was done through very specific calculative practices, so calculations, Uh, So the the, the tipping point between the two things, so using calculations to interrogate the future as a mystery and using calculations to interrogate the future as certainty or to reduce that to something that is certain, is actually very minute and very minuscule in a sense. Mm. So I wonder whether you can say something or if you have any thought on how is that we tend to tip Uh, towards, uh, you know, the certainty bit rather than the mystery bit, especially in the last, I would say, uh, 40, 50 years. Thank you.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, what you're saying is, yeah, that's the very sort of thing that I'm interested in. Um. (coughs) But, yeah, it does seem somewhat ironic that uh, in a in market circumstances that seem so volatile and therefore one would think, you know, would hinder your ability to predict what's going to happen, to calculate what's going to happen. And in circumstances that would promote the sense that the future is a mystery or simply unknown, uh, you have at the same time this uh, appeal to uh, financial instruments that would seem to that would only work if you were to assume that the future was, at least its variability, was predictable. You know, that you could come up with very reliable probabilities uh, with respect to a number of different scenarios. And I'm basically suggesting, I mean, I think the mechanism here is very simple. I mean, you need to make money off that volatility. And in order to make money off it, you can't just let it be unknown, and then the jig is up, there's no way to make money off this you have to you have to some find some way of you know figuring out within a range of probabilities what what's the likely range because otherwise you can't price anything and you can't make money off volatility so you're kind of in this kind of almost this catch 22 like everything is the markets are are organized in ways that make them extremely volatile make them appear to be completely unpredictable you know i mean you can just see that in uh economic reporting you know one day you read the paper and everybody seems to be expecting doom the next day everybody's happy and it's like well what was it which was it you know should we be expecting doom or should we be uh, very happy things just change so rapidly and there doesn't seem to be a kind of recognition well that must mean that we really don't know what the future is going to be like I mean you can't go there because uh, you have to make money off all this that's the short answer
4: Thank you so much for your lecture. I guess my question is about how this would work out in practice um, or the relationship between your discussion of how things work in capitalism with regard to our perspective on past, present, future, and how they work in Christianity. So I'm assuming that you want to transform or you have an idea of transforming capitalism through um, the exercise of a different Christian perspective on past, present, and future. So the idea isn't to remove yourself from the problematic structures, but maybe to transform them from within. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, they're transformable. Yeah, uh, That's what I meant by realistic proximate futures. Maybe mm-hmm. that's opaque. But what that means is you know, the present situation allows you to alter certain things. You have certain room for maneuver in present, you know, at present. Like after the financial crisis, there were more options for, uh, you know, say, financial regulation than there were before it. So, yeah, there are all kinds of realistic proximate futures. I'm not telling you what they are, but I think at any particular point, they're pretty clear what the realistic proximate futures would be. And I'm just saying that Christians are, rather than uh, not being interested in that because they're expecting a whole different world that has nothing to do with this one, actually their expectations of a world that's nothing like this one points them towards those realistic proximate futures and is impelling them to take them. But I'm not uh, particularly interested, because it varies from day to day, in telling you practically what those realistic proximate futures are. There are all kinds of ones, like it might be realistic to set interest rate caps. It might be realistic to tax financial transactions. It might be realistic, you know, XYZ.
4: I guess my question is just sort of um, being part of the system itself presumably involves some level of compromise, right? Um, not necessarily compromising your own values, but you have to be part of what is essentially a corrupt system in order to transform it. So how does that work out when you're always kind of in between the Christian vision and some um, sort of corrupted system? But what I'm
1: suggesting is that Mm -hmm. Christians uh, expect to be complicit. Mm -hmm. They don't expect to be pure. They don't expect to be saints. They expect to be complicit in a situation Mm -hmm. that is... uh, that they can't isolate themselves from even if they would like to. So it's not a question of, well, how do I maintain my purity in this corrupt system? It's like, okay, it's a corrupt system. You're not so hot either, but there are certain things that you could do uh, to change things, and you at least know that the whole thing should be changed radically. And why?
2: Thank you, Professor Tanner. Um, I've been very interested just listening in the last three lectures, uh, the word disruption has uh, been a recurring theme, very appropriate for Edinburgh. Um, It's prompted me to ask myself about God's relation to the world. And um, I was wondering if you um, might share any thoughts on whether God uh, relates to his world, how he relates to his world beyond his disrupting and uh, what... uh, uh, what what implications that may have for uh, the the new finance-dominated spirit of capitalism? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I'm stressing disruption here, but underlying it is this sense that uh, God is giving you what you need to live differently. So, it's it's not kind of a negative vision of well, just disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. Uh, I mean, to the contrary, you're being told <laughs> that. You should change things, not just your own life, but the, the life of the world, radically. And that you have been empowered to do that. You have what's necessary to do it. And it's somewhat a mystery why people don't seem to be very good at this. But uh, I think that's the hope. So it's not particularly a negative one. It's a very positive-oriented, you know, you're being empowered to act and to live differently. Does that make some sense?
2: Um, certainly, if I could push back just a little. Yeah. Um, certainly, um, that's really lucid in your presentation. Uh, the gospel presents an alternative story um, in each lecture uh, to the description. I'm interested in the uh, the structures that you describe in the first portions of your lectures, and uh, God disrupts these structures or these uh, dynamics. Um, well, uh,
1: ideally speaking, yeah. But we would have to do that. Mm doesn't seem to be being done very effectively. Yeah.
2: So I was, I was interested in whether um, you might like to share whether God uh, relates to these structures in ways beyond uh, disrupting. Um.
1: Yeah, well, uh, again, something positive should come out of that. I mean, you're not just disrupting for the sake of chaos or something. I mean, there's there's some alternative way of living life that should take the place of the one that's being disrupted. Yeah. No, I I think we're on the same wavelength.
2: Uh, Once again, thank you for these lectures. Uh, There's been an implicit uh, dialogue throughout them all with uh, some liberation theology, and obviously some of the original liberation theology uh, advocated radical revolution, and the Boffs, for instance, were explicitly against reformism. Uh, And in contrast to that, though, some of the newer uh, Latin American liberationists would actually advocate reformism from within. I'm thinking of Jung Mo Sung, for instance. Does that mean you would side more with the more recent liberation theology rather than the original Latin American program?
1: Uh, it's a little hard to say. I'd have to, we'd have to talk about particular people. But, I mean, usually, as I understand it, the, why, the reason why Latin American uh, liberation theology and offshoots of it in uh, Uh, say North American context, the the reason why they shy away from the language of revolution is because they don't have a, uh, there doesn't seem to be any available political theory, like a Marxist one or a socialist one, that would make sense of what's to replace the current system. So usually there's a sense, well you can't actually replace it, you have to, it has to be mutated in some way. I mean, I think that's a bit of a false alternative. I mean, I don't don't think you actually necessarily need a, um, you know, an obvious alternative replacement for capitalism in the form of Marxism or socialism or some other obviously viable, potentially viable uh, economic system. So I'm trying to avoid that whole question. But that's very, it's a very good question.
5: Thanks. A quick question, which you may have hit last week when I was not here, so apologies for that. My question's just about prophecy, um, Mm -hmm. which again is this sort of, um, in some ways, a a, a relationship to the past that um, is obviously familiar in Christian context, but is a really sharp contrast between um, the sort of finance capital language of a past that is both sort of in retrospect inevitable but then completely irrelevant. Right, which you've outlined really nicely here, but then you have a you have a Christian relationship to the past that you've articulated in, as surprising um, in retrospect, completely unpredictable, um, and yet somehow, at least with the benefit of retrospect, totally known um, and totally totally we are able to understand it and see echoes of it in the prophecy again, right. probably after the fact. Yeah. That's so right. that's yeah, an. that
1: was in an earlier lecture about that retrospective right. reading. That, yeah. Uh,
5: yeah, but go ahead. Well, no, that that was pretty much, um, I'm just sort of, yeah, speaking to that, I guess, and then as a particular sort of, yeah, um, relate a uh, particular kind of concur- concordance, I suppose, between the two yeah. spaces. But, but if the
1: question has to do with prophecy, yeah, yeah this would be a, an unusual, you know, it wouldn't be what contemporary people ordinarily think that prophecy is, or at least my reading of, like, early modern uh European thought, you know, prophecy tends to become something like a uh, prediction or a future, you know, a prognostication about the future. And I don't think that's, you know, prior to the modern period what people thought prophecy was. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't like you saw into the future and then told, you know, I mean, even, well, it's a long, there's a lot that can be said about that, obviously. But, yeah, different understandings of prophecy that don't work from, the present to something that mm-hmm. is kind of predictable and therefore unsurprising, but that have a kind of oddly retrospective character. Well like, or we know that things were surprising before, they're mm-hmm. gonna be surprising again. That's a that's a prediction. Yeah. Yeah. You're predicting surprise. <laughs> okay. But that's not usually what prophecy means. It means you know what is gonna happen and you tell people about it right now. It's so just a prediction.
5: Or, di- or, sort of, contemporary. I'm thinking now, like, sort of, Pentecostal context, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm an anthropologist, I work in no, African cool. Pentecostals. Oh, yeah. So, and most of what they call prophecy is actually divination. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, which is, a, which is another, a different sort of, yeah, different sort kind of, of present knowledge, but with, with particular kinds of future and past implications. So, it's a way of re articulating. And that might also, I don't know, just enrich yeah, the discussion. I mean, I
1: don't know that much about it, but yeah, getting in touch with powers that uh, have been present. In the past and that are continuing into the future. And yeah, you're getting, you, you're making contact with them almost. But yeah, you know, that would be interesting to talk about. Yeah.
0: Okay. I, I suspect we could keep you here all night. No, this and keep, is great. Keep asking you questions, but I think we'll maybe bring it to a close. Okay. For yeah,
1: tonight. I think my coffee is wearing Your off. Your coffee's now, wearing so off. You know, <laughs> Your throat, which has I'm lasted, is descending done into very well. normal speed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just to thank Professor Catherine Tanner very much again and remind people before we, we thank her properly th- about the final lecture in the series on Thursday called Which World when hopefully you'll bring everything together. So everything
1: will be brought together. All, <laughs> all questions answered, all <laughs> mysteries solved. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Great. Okay. So thank you very much again. Yeah, thank Heidi. you. Thank this you. was great.